Hello, hello. Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day a true proletarian revolution. So if you haven't checked out the show before, I am your host, Josh. And until that lovely day comes, you are listening to In Defense of Liberation. This show I have been doing for a while. Uh, I originally had done a show uh, called Annoying Question Boy, which had a little bit different vibe, although not really, to it. Um... This show, we try to focus more on actively um, demystifying the world rather than just simply asking questions. Now, of course, we love to ask questions. We love to learn about new things. We especially love to have guests on who we can ask questions. So if you ever find yourself with uh, uh, an idea of you know, maybe a podcaster, a YouTuber, a blogger, an author, an activist, or an organizer, uh, maybe an organization that you'd like me to interview or to try to go on their show to be interviewed, um, let me know because, of course, um, the real difference between what my show was and what my show is now is I am way more intent on using the show as a medium to build solidarity and to heighten the consciousness of those who listen to my show, as well as myself through the experience of critique and self-critique, as well as learning from guests that I have on the show, Um, and trying to center that in a framework of defending people's right to liberation, not solely from colonialism or imperialism, but from the entire capitalist bourgeois system, the entire global world market, and making their way towards socialism and communism. So with that nice little intro, I'd like to say thanks for stopping by. If you end up enjoying the show, please do me a favor, head on over to Apple Podcasts and let me know what you think. You can leave a rating as well as a review. Um, If you'd like to help me boost my reach in the algorithm so that I continue reaching new people, um, having new guests on and learning new information alongside with you guys, then uh, by all means go do so. Uh, The way to do that is, uh, and I promise you I'm not fishing here, the way to boost me in the algorithm actually is by giving me the highest rating and leaving any review. Um, That's enough interactions with the algorithm that it will propel me much more forward than if you just leave a review or if you just leave any rating. Um, But of course, be honest, um, I really, really, really like to know how I can improve the show. Unfortunately, I do spend a lot of time recording the show in my car while I'm driving, so the quality of the show I know could be much, much better. I simply don't have the time or expertise to narrow down the time that it would take to make more quality content, so I do apologize for that. Um, There was a time where I was able to sit and record this with a nice microphone on my laptop, edit the sound, cut things out. Yeah, I don't do that shit anymore. You're getting recorded on my phone, and I'm posting that shit as long as it's worth posting. Um, so sorry about that. We we did have a period of time during this pandemic where they sort of kind of thought maybe about, you know, not forcing people to go interact with each other every single day, and therefore, I did have a lot of free time on my hands. However, our ruling class has decided they, in fact, don't really care about us dying, what a shocker. So now I get to drive and record on my way to work every fucking day. So yeah, if anything else can be improved except for that, please let me know. But anyways, I've been rambling long enough. Let's get into the show. So today I want to discuss imperialism. 
but I want to try to do it in a more in-depth as well as practical way. Um, I sat down at my computer this morning to write a blog um, about this very topic, and I found that, as usual, there was far more information needed, and I needed to go to a much lengthier explanation in writing than I really expected to. Um, or wanted to, for that matter. And so I wasn't able to finish the blog in time. I went through and cut a bunch of shit out. And then eventually I got to the point where I was halfway done with it. And I was like, nah, I could probably cut some of this as well. And so, you know, that was that. Ran out of time. But I want to translate that over to this podcast. Because I think, honestly, and I do this often, it is much easier for me to do a podcast. Now, to those who have listened to my show before, there's rambling, there's side tangents, and there's a possible chance that the finishing discussion has very little to do with the starting discussion. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's what happens when you talk to yourself in your car for 45 minutes while driving to work as an, a podcast. <laughs> so... Although it sometimes is easier for me to do the podcast, it doesn't always turn out fantastic. But I find that oftentimes being able to like kind of talk out and hear what I'm saying allows for me to kind of correct it as I'm saying it and be able to describe and discuss what I'm meaning to explain much better, I think. Y'all can let me know, of course. But so, we're talking about imperialism today. What is imperialism? Well, I would like to first, before we discuss imperialism, I'd like to talk about a historical development within society which precluded imperialism. So, throughout history, Since the most earliest agricultural and domesticated societies began to develop, we had a separation between the folks who were able to own what they needed, you know, maybe the tools to to till the land or, you know, the animals and the uh, uh, land uh, and um, facilities to, you know, butcher, uh, milk, shave, etc., animals in order to, you know, sell those. Um, And then there was the whole group of people who didn't own that shit, you know? They didn't have the ability to really, like, quote-unquote, own the land. Um, There's many cultures that for hundreds of years had no real incentive of ownership or private property but instead developed societies wherein you had folks who made the decisions about your maybe tribe or clan or whatever. Um, And eventually this made its way towards a more stable authority within these cultures and societies which developed out through interaction with other cultures into a similar formulation. But indigenous cultures always show us what could have been, what still is to some extent, and what colonialism and imperialism have been incapable of stamping out. So indigenous cultures offer a very... expansive uh, understanding of the different forms and the different ways in which human beings have lived throughout the world. During the period of time in which more early agricultural societies were beginning developed, you also had the development from that into slave societies. Now, of course, you can tell in those societies there are folks who own slaves, who own the land that the slaves work on, who own the shelter that the slaves sleep in, right? There are people who have political and social power, who have rights of some sort to participate in the politics of their society. 
they have an economic uh, advantage over the slaves. So, of course, just like the early agricultural societies, you have those who can own the means of production as well as the means of subsistence, food, clothing, shelter, water, etc. And then you have those who have to labor or work in order to be given or afford those means of subsistence. But from this point on, it's the dominant class within society that actually owns things. Whereas you and I get to purchase them, of course, in different forms throughout history, from those ruling class and dominant class owners. From the slave societies, you have a development of what we know as feudalism or absolutism. Now, feudalism and absolutism is where the classes have truly consolidated themselves much further than in a slave society. Because in a slave society, of course, you have the slave owners, but you also have the politicians and the rulers who aren't necessarily slave owners. And the slave owners and the, uh, the rest of the ruling class aren't necessarily amalgamous. And therefore, they have contradictions. They disagree on different things. Absolutism was an attempt to completely avoid that by saying, listen, I'm the motherfucker in charge. When I make decisions, you listen. So I'm in charge. Everybody who's underneath me is not. Feudalism begins begins to intensify the contradictions between those who own and those who don't. It's not like those contradictions weren't intensified before, but we have truly gotten to the, uh, um, the climax where the level of concentration of wealth and power is so, so, so narrow that literally one or a few people own and are in charge of everything. You have the kings and the queens, of course, but then you have your lords. Because let's remember, we got landlords today. Where did they come from? Feudalism. You had a guy or a person or a group of people who was in ownership of land, right? And most people who didn't own land needed to work land so that they could eat. Of course, they didn't have the means to go out and just buy a tack of land and they weren't given any right to do so within the courts, within the justice system, etc. Within the political and social system, they were not given the ability to do so. So you have a landlord who owns the land and then you have serfs who have to go live on that land and the only way that they can be con- uh, continue to live on that land is by working that land and giving the surplus labor what they are actually able to produce to the person who owns the land. Now, they get some of that so that they can survive? Sure. Do they get to live on the land? Sure. Do they own the land? No. Do they own the, to- the tools that they use to uh, work the land? No. Do they own the fruits of that land? No. Do they own the shelter on the land? No. Do they have any political, social, or economic rights? No. So all three of these historical developments, early agricultural societies, slave societies, as well as absolutist and feudal societies, all have one thing in common. They are class societies. You have a direct distinction between those who own and those who labor, those who are oppressed and those who are oppressing them. This is important because we must understand here that a power dynamic exists. This is not just force or power in the abstract like philosophers and idealists like to discuss it. This is power and force in material existence. 
in physical matter where the feudal lords actually physically owned the land and therefore were able to oppress and suppress the working and oppressed people physically, not just in idea where people feel compelled to listen, but if you didn't listen, you couldn't eat. That's quite the force. If you didn't listen as a slave, you could be killed. That's quite the force. So it's important here to discuss that this power structure was material. It existed in the material realm. There was actual fundamental laws, uh, economic, social, and political relations which supported and perpetuated, as they do today, the power and control remaining in the hands of the dominant class. It wasn't just every single working and oppressed person deciding every single day, you know what, I think that that ruling class, I think they got it down. You know, I, I really don't feel like questioning what they're doing because it genuinely seems like they're, they're just doing a good job at it. No, I mean, not for nothing, all of the people who have had to suffer the oppression and control of another, I'm sure they could all agree on the fact that they don't give a shit about how quote-unquote good their ruler is. They'd like to be fucking free. That's all they care about. Myself included, I'd like to be free of a system where I gotta drive 45 minutes every single fucking day just so I can afford the gas that goes in the car to drive to that job 45 minutes a day so that I can afford the house that I live in, so that I can afford the food that's in my fridge, so that I can afford the heating and electricity that goes through my house, so that I can afford the clothes on my back. The only way that I can do that is by working. So I'd love to be free of a system that says you don't get to live unless you labor. I'd love to be free of that system, and I'm sure you would too. So just like those who came before us, we must understand that it does not matter who our oppressor is. It matters that we are being oppressed. So now that we have that really centered on, let's transition into the next part of this discussion, which is colonialism versus imperialism. And then we will use this as a discussion of imperialism and what needs to be done about it. So, I went to high school in the United States. We were taught that colonialism and imperialism are two distinctly different things. We're also taught the United States didn't do either of those. That's really cool. Thanks, Rome Free Academy. You did a great job. Anyways, colonialism and imperialism to my... Uh, ruling class education is a distinctly different uh, uh, system of oppression from one another because it has to be, right? We in the Western world, and actually most of the world, we study things in a metaphysical sense, which means we study them isolated and away from their relations. We study them individually and try to figure them out in such a way. But I would like to make the argument that colonialism and imperialism are only different in form and historical epochs. Now, of course, did they each take different ways in which to steal power and wealth from the oppressed and working peoples? Sure. But then we're just talking about two sides of the same coin, which is this is a system wherein one group is definitely in charge and they use their power to plunder, pillage, and steal all the resources, land, and labor force from a oppressed working group of people. Now, is it, of course, important that colonialism here in the United States, in North America, look different than the colonialism that existed in Africa, Central, South America, or Asia? Yes, it is important, because here in the United States, 
we have to understand the very historical development that took place within the United States. Because by doing so, we are able to get a true analysis of the different groups which exist within society, what is facing them, how their class itself is organized, where their interests lie, whether they have uh, petty pooj boot Jesus Christ, <laughs> whether they have petty bourgeois idealism or whether they are revolutionary in their ideals, right? Because before revolution can take a material form, we have to actually think about the fact that we need a revolution. So until we're at that point, we're still sitting ducks. The colonialism that took place here in North America is important to understand because we have millions of indigenous peoples who have watched as their land, their lives, their culture, and their very existence has been erased from not only the history books, but our day-to-day lives. Very little, very, very infrequently, do you hear about the struggles that indigenous peoples are enduring. Now, in the last few years, that has grown the level of consciousness that most people have about the awful atrocities that indigenous peoples of North America have had to suffer is it is increasing. But again, we want to talk about the difference between a raising, you know, maybe awareness or a, a sort of feeling of allyship. We want to compare that to a material change and an actual development of, of a new world, a new society. Colonialism in the United States is important because we understand that this country was not started as many others had been. This country, and I'm putting air quotes around it, America with three Ks, was founded by the Virginia Company. It was founded as a colony, which developed into a settler colonial nation, which developed into an empire uh, based on imperial and colonial plunder. So you'll see here that the swift transition between colonialism and imperialism is, of course, different in form, but not in essence. At the end of the day, what's the goal of colonialism? To steal the land, labor, resources, and anything that they can from indigenous peoples of the land that they are colonizing. What is imperialism? Imperialism is the invasion and control of outside markets, labor, resources, and land by an imperial power. Now, we can go into maybe some of the minute differences in maybe settler colonialism versus colonialism generally, imperialism versus neocolonialism versus neoliberalism versus uh, uh, um, social imperialism, etc. But I don't want to discuss that because I want to talk about the practical ways in which we have to stop imperialism. So... Imperialism, then, of course, again, is a system by which an imperial empire controls the markets, the labor, the resources, and the land of the imperialized nation. Now, we can understand quite concretely how this happens militarily. We can see how the CIA the FBI, the USAID, and other U.S. state departments, as well as the U.N., militarily imperializes the world. We, we, can, we can see that. But we have to understand the concrete and material incentive or interest that capitalism has to pursue imperialism. Because right now, within the empire, one might think, okay, we've built up enough wealth we have all the privileges and, and uh, you know, things that the global south doesn't have because we've stole them from the global south. We can talk about the fact that the United States ruling class, similar to the Nordic ruling classes, has given the citizens and individuals who are allowed citizenry within the United States 
a better existence than the global south. But when we are discussing this, we have to understand that it doesn't just exist because, you know, our ruling class was like, well, you know, I think I would really like to be in charge of the world, um, not Britain, so I'm just going to go ahead and do that. If that was how it went, if you could just decide because you wanted to oppress the world that you could do it, that, you know how many people would have dominated the world far before anyone like Napoleon or anyone like that? There's been thousands of folks who have been selfish enough to say, I want to dominate the world. The difference is there's not always the real-life ability to do so. Capitalism and its historical development in the world began to provide imperial powers all over the world with the real concrete and material ability to do so. And the necessity... Because, of course, as we know, capitalism is a system which exists for profits. It uses markets, resources, and land to develop and produce commodities, which are then sold and exchanged for profits, which therein the capitalist imperialist powers takes itself and uses to amass more power and more wealth. This is done whether you're talking about Amazon or the U.S. military. So imperialism is less a it, it is less an evil, quote unquote, and more a material necessity of capitalism. I've discussed on the shows the difficulties of viewing things as a moral injustice and how difficult it is to actually build a militant and organized Uh, group to fight morality because, hey, people don't agree on morality. People can agree on the fact that I don't have food, you don't have food, I don't have a house, you don't have a house, but we both work 40 plus hours a week. How the fuck is this possible? People can agree on that. They can't agree on the fact that the U.S. is evil because there's still some fucking leftists and Marxists We're talking about the fact that we got to be patriotic in the world's worst imperial empire that's existed. Some people disagree with the fact that the United States is the world's worst imperial power. And I feel like anyone who's caught on that discussion really isn't clearly understanding what the fuck we're doing here. Capitalism develops a necessity for imperialism because it needs new markets. Capitalism continuously needs to expand. But just like colonialism, capitalism and its form in imperialism can't just jump the gun. You know, you couldn't just come over to North America in uh, 1492 and set up textile industries, set up huge uh, marketplaces, set up huge transportation companies without a guarantee of any of that even being profitable. So first and foremost, they got to come in, massacre everyone, take control of the land, set up the law and the politics and the social relations as they want it, and then be able to develop how capitalism needs to. It first needs to take control of the land, resources, markets, and labor before it can employ them. You can't walk into a Dunkin' Donuts and say, fucking make me uh, whatever without having money to give them or without being in charge of them. You can't walk up to a contractor and say, build me a house without having some money to give them. Or without being able to assume a form of authority where they have to listen to you. You can't walk into a... I don't know. You you can't walk into a board of directors and tell them what the fuck to do. Like, you, I'm sure you understand the analogy here. And it's important to understand this because then we can see how imperialism goes about taking over markets across the world and the logistics behind it. So imperialism, as Lenin wrote about in a few different works, 
Um, I think one of the very good works to read prior to reading Imperialism, Highest Stage of Capitalism, which is the work in which Lenin expounds upon imperialism the most. I think you should read The Development of Capitalism in Russia. Um, I think that's what it's called. Because that gives you a good basis to how actually capitalism formed historically in the specific context of Russia, which then when you read imperialism, highest stage of capitalism, you have the base historical development of capitalism to see and have the context for, which gives you a better picture to understand imperialism as it developed. So imperialism, again, is an invasion of the markets, resources, land, and labor force, and a capturing of those by an outside power, and therein manipulated for the benefit of the outside power, not the home market, as we might call it. But imperialism has an economic basis. It is an important mission for every Marxist to understand imperialism's economic foundation. Now, I'm, I'm you know, spending a lot of my time on that. I'm not an expert by any means, so I've, I misspeak either now or if I have misspoken up until this point. I hope uh, we can understand why, because this shit is hard to, to really comprehend fully. Um, and I think a lot of times there's a lot of information that goes into understanding these things that folks like myself don't have all the time in the world to learn. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uh, piece of work in progress, yeah? So, even though I might get some things wrong, I do apologize, um, because this is just, you know, of course, the explanation as best to my understanding. But anyways, we have to understand imperialism in its economic sense, in its materialist form, not because I say so, but because that's what we as Marxists do. We don't learn about capitalism and uh, focus on anything other than its material basis, its historical and dialectical development, and the material basis behind why um, this development occurred. So understanding imperialism must be done at, in a similar way. So imperialism, again, develops out of the natural need of capitalism for new markets and continuous growth, as well as cheaper sources of resources, cheaper sources of labor, cheaper sources of land. But eventually we've gotten to a point where, shit, we've colonized the whole world. We can't go to Africa and, and excuse me here, the door's about to be loud. We can't just go over to Africa with big guns and say, listen, we're going to go ahead and take this from you. Because guess what? France or Belgium or Britain or Germany is going to say, mm, no, we're already here, guys. Um, so eventually, capital goes, well, shit. I can't just employ the biggest army and I can't just enslave entire populations of indigenous people. They've gotten wise to that and now they're starting to kill us. And also I got these other capitalist countries who are becoming so huge that I actually have to give a shit about them. I actually have to pay attention to them and shit. I might have to go to war with them. And that's exactly what happened. As Lenin discusses in imperialism, which is what I'm going to refer to it as, uh, um, like kind of just, you know, for sake of quickness. Um, but I'll always, of course, say Lenin first so that you understand that it's not just imperial. Okay, anyways, fucking 
So in his book, Imperialism, Lenin discusses how World War I was in fact not a uh, righteous war that the nationalists in Russia should be in favor of. He was saying, you know, you shouldn't be all about fighting for quote unquote Mother Russia, first and foremost, because what the fuck has Mother Russia ever done for you? I mean, just a few months ago, we were talking about fucking killing the czar. And now you're talking about we got to defend our our motherland, you know, and, and Lenin's sitting around going, listen, guys, this isn't what you're what you're thinking it is. He's like, this is actually the capitalist powers warring over the ability to dominate the global market, to dominate as the imperial power. Because just as capitalism itself has the natural tendency towards monopolization and centralization, so too does imperialism. So the imperial powers are both or all searching for monopoly, for control of the global market, and eventually this leads them to war. So Lenin shows in his book how that is the, you know, the real material basis behind World War I, and he explains it incredibly well that no one could disagree with him except for Kautsky in the Second International who was full of a bunch of revisionist, opportunist assholes who had no actual understanding of Marxism. Gee, it's a good thing we got rid of all those folks, right? Anywho, um, but also in that book, of course, as the name would suggest, he goes through and shows how imperialism itself is not some special development. It's not, again, a metaphysical thing that we can understand as a spontaneous and uh, individual rupture because that's not how things work. Things always have a material basis. So he shows how imperialism is in fact a natural tendency of capitalism because as we've already discussed, once you dominate the entire national or regional market, you have to search for more land, because the more land you have, the more you can grow, the more you can sell. More labor, because the more land you have, the more you're going to grow, the more people you need to grow it. More resources, because, of course, you need the resources to actually grow things. And more markets, because, oh, if you have all this shit to sell, and you can't sell it, that's overproduction. And that causes a panic, a recession, a depression, whatever you want to call it, until eventually capitalism centralizes itself by either companies merging, companies selling out, um, etc., etc. So Lenin says, listen, imperialism is not some magic, uh, abstract thing that just developed out of the, the want to do so. It wasn't because some, you know, awful, evil Germans or some awful, evil Americans or some awful, evil Russians just wanted to dominate the world because they're so evil and power hungry but because they needed to do so, otherwise their entire basis of their power would crumble. Because as we know, since the feudal mode of production died and the capitalist one took over, this system is based on what? Profits and constant growth. So at the basis of every World historic event, even world wars, it is capitalism which is the guiding force to that phenomenon. You cannot separate the two. You must be able to understand how one is affected and thereby affects the other. 
So Lenin says that, again, capitalism needs these markets, capitalism needs this labor, capitalism needs these resources, capitalism needs these lands. So what are we going to do about it? Well, of course, as always, Lenin said, we need socialism. And Lenin himself, as many will know, was the guiding voice of Marxism in his time. In his early years, he fought the Narodniks, who were considered the Marxists of the time, and showed how, in fact, their theories of, for example, imperialism, were incorrect. He also showed how the Second International and the Cap, uh, 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 the, the Second International and the quote ultra imperialist crowd was also incorrect because he shows listen, we can't have imperialism and socialism which was the theories behind ultra-imperialism, which was that imperialism would advance to such a heightened stage that it would lead towards more global cooperation. Because of its size, it would require, as we see today, you know, all of our markets are connected. But Kautsky and the... Um, Kautsky and the Second International and the ultra-imperialists believed, in fact, that this wouldn't lead towards more conflict and heightened aggression between the powers, but in fact would lead towards global cooperation. Of course, this makes no sense if we take the already understood theories of the monopolization of capitalism and the monopolization of capitalism towards imperialism, then how, how the fuck does ultra-imperialism make sense? But imperialism, we were discussing earlier, and of course, I got off on a tangent. Imperialism is not just world wars. It is not just militarization. It is especially what Lenin called monopoly or finance capital. So now, okay, you got German banks. You have American industry. You have French textiles, British textiles. You have maybe Dutch sweatshops and all this shit. But is the money that is backing, say, Deutsche Bank, is that money German? No, no, it's not. It's American. Is the money that's backing the large transnational transportation corporations truly the money coming from the country that supposedly owns that transnational transportation company? No. And this is how it's done. Imperialism is not just war. Imperialism is the economic control of the world. Julian Krumah discusses heavily in his book, Neocolonialism, as to how this has taken new form in the supposedly, quote, developing nations, right? Because now these nations are given the freedom by their very, very, very resistance. There's no other reason why countries in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, got their independence and their quote-unquote freedom other than their militant resistance and the imperialized and colonized people's will and determination. The same goes for black, brown, and indigenous peoples 
here in the United States. It is not the good graces of this or that politician. It is not the help of the white people who are so gracious to to care about and save these poor, poor people. No. The only thing that has been able to consistently be there and fight for the freedom of marginalized and oppressed people is marginalized and oppressed people themselves. However, we're talking about a global oppression which unites the two classes very material basis of that system. What I mean is this. The ruling classes of the world are 100% solidified in their fight for continued control. Now, does that mean that the French ruling class really loves the Australian ruling class right now? Not in the slightest. Does that mean the U.S. really feels quite well about the United States ruling class and the British ruling class? Because they're supposedly buddies, right? We've supposedly been buddies since the War of 1812. Um, But it does mean that they are unified in the, the mission that The American ruling class gets to remain the American ruling class. And the German ruling class gets to remain the German ruling class. And you want to know how they solidified that? United Nations. As well as the millions of other small and unknown trade agreements, uh, transnational banking uh, uh, deals, stock exchange, it doesn't matter. They are united in their mission to stay in power. And so every few years, the ruling classes of all these countries go here or go there, and they say, okay, this is what we've done. This is what we think's wrong. This is da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But none of them, none of them in, you know, at least today, are going up there and saying, you know what we need? We need a global proletarian revolution. Many people have gone to the UN and spoken about such, but very few of the UN member states have anything to do or say about such such a glorious undertaking. Because each one of them has an economic interest put directly into and fueling imperialism and capitalism. Capitalism's very nature leads towards imperialism. So, you know, what the fuck do we do, right? Like, if they got all the guns, they own all the markets, they own the media... They own the transportation companies. They own the banking firms. What the fuck can we do? Well, during the World War, uh, Lenin called for what he called revolutionary defeatism. He said, listen, how the fuck can we sit around and cheer for the people who literally months ago we were saying needed to be completely revoked from their seats of power? How, How can we do that? He said, no, we should think about fighting for a weakening of our imperial country so as to be able to wage a revolution against a weaker foe. Well, you know, this makes a lot more sense. Although we're not in a world war today, supposedly, that's what they'll tell you, even though we're in a war in literally every single region of the globe, including a war for uh, possible new oil fields in what is becoming no longer the Arctic, uh, where ice is melting and new land is being found and new oil reserves are being found. 
we're already going to war over uh, uh, land disputes there. Even though we're not technically in a world war, what we have to be fighting for is an anti-imperialist movement which is able to take out the world powers and their domination of the world. Because, okay, it might not be said on a piece of paper or on the news that we are engaged in warfare. But the United States has over 800 military bases across the world of which most, if not all, are capable of waging a full-scale war against the nation that they are in and take power. The United States also has groups like the CIA, the FBI, etc., who train military, politicians, etc., on how to do the same thing themselves. And then, of course, if they don't follow suit, we'll kill them, and then we'll put someone else in there. But the United States isn't the only one that's doing it. The whole Western world powers are doing it. However, we're in the United States. If if you're not, I mean, I'm in the United States. So then it would be logical to say, then, that the goal... Right now, if we are to take Lenin's theories of imperialism, adapt them to today, take his theories of revolutionary defeatism and adapt them to today, we will recognize that we are in fact at war. We're at a class war. But we're also actually at war against the entire world all the time. The United States has been in a war for 226 of its 240-something years of existence. We have always been at war. Our entire economy is built on war. So we have to recognize that first and foremost, we have to be fighting for the weakening and deterioration of our imperial nation, of the empire that we live in. Now, I say R to mean, of course, the one that we live in, not the one that we are in control of. Because I think a lot of times folks in the West are accused of being just as guilty of the sins of their ruling class as their ruling class themselves. I don't necessarily agree with that assessment. I think that the the most broad and most unifying struggle must be built. And I think that the situation that folks such as myself are in being within the belly of the beast offers a real opportunity at truly aiding the global proletariat the only difference is white chauvinism as well as you know being within the imperial uh core has led to a lot of uh well it's led to a lot of things that have not helped the global self, such as the ideas of ultra-imperialism, right? Oh, let's just imperialize the rest of the world so we can all, you know, be united. It's fine. They, you know, we, we just can ignore all the shit that's happening in the global south. That ultra-imperialism is still prevalent today with all this bullshit-ass patriotism that folks are trying to perpetuate. Or saying that we can have a, you know, a global... Uh, or saying that we can have a revolution here in the United States, that this way we can have, you know, health care and free education. No, if we have a revolution here in the United States, the first thing we have to do is take our entire budget and give it to the rest of the revolutionary powers of the world. We have to give it to Nicaragua. We have to give it to Venezuela. We have to end sanctions on Cuba and Bolivia and uh, Iran, and uh, all in Syria, and Somalia. We have to end the equality between the global powers before we can just start giving people uh, uh, free housing, right? Now, is the goal free housing? Yes. 
has many powers before us, such as the Cubans, such as um, uh, the USSR, such as China. Have they been able to provide amazing things for their people? Yes. But I would argue that here in the Imperial core, similar to how our uh, uh, goal of kind of sweeping the legs out from under the Imperial nations is is, uh, an opportunity to give the global South uh, air to breathe. I think by taking state power within the Imperial core, we also have a, an incredible opportunity, and I would say uh, uh, responsibility to provide the suffering people of the world with means of subsistence. I think that is the least that we could do and one of the most important things that we can do because one mistake that many, many socialist revolutions have made is they have not been able to, because of capitalism, truly develop and internationalism um, because they have been stopped by uh, whether it's global trade or militarization or imperialism, whatever it may be, um, it, it has not been able to develop. So I think, I think if we were to have a revolution here within the United States, I think that that would be one of the most important things that we could do. Um, but, you know, talking about how we can actually do that is we got to be building mass organizations based on anti-imperialist struggles. We have to be organizing our communities and educating them about the fact that, okay, we, right, don't have anything that we need. Many of us don't have jobs. Many of us don't have um you know, food or health care. Um, so what are we going to do about it? And, and getting them aware that, okay, we can't just vote in another politician. We can't just try to do capitalism better, right? We have to have socialism. We got to get the folks to that point. And then we got to build socialism. So all of this stems from of course, also impacting the ideology of the average working person, which means we have to push against chauvinistic ideas, which means we have to push against racist ideas, which means we have to push against and struggle against the continued uh, sense that the first world deserves the first world's existence um, and, and that, you know, we have a socialist revolution and then just make everything better for folks in the United States. Um, we have to fight all these ideas, but we also have to build like physical uh, organizations and powers which are capable of changing reality, not just saying that reality needs to be changed. We have to be organizing demonstrations, right? We have to be continuously every single fucking day that we can out on the streets demanding an end to the sanctions against Iran, demanding an end to the sanctions against Cuba, demanding an end to the continuous bombing of Somalia, of Syria, of uh, the continuous support of the apartheid state of Israel. We have to be doing uh, active education of our working class and oppressed communities on why socialism, not capitalism, is the only system that can provide for the needs of the people. We have to be doing mass education in the schools in the streets in our interactions with people right we have to be doing all of that but the most important thing that we have to do is we have to get organized we can't all just be united in our hatred for imperialism our hatred for capitalism and think that that is going to take us far enough 
We have to be organized on a basis of scientific socialism, of ending the oppression and repression of the global South by way of socialist and proletarian revolution. Otherwise, we are united against something, but we are not united for something. And when the first contradiction is defeated, another will come. And will we be able to move from one contradiction to another in order to actually free and aid the people that we're saying we want to? Maybe not. Maybe not if we are not capable of actually building what we need to build. So like Kwame Ture discusses, we can't just mobilize the people we got to organize the people and we got to organize them on a basis of scientific socialism because history has shown us this. History has shown us what imperialism is. History has shown us how it developed. History has shown us how capitalism is directly connected to the development of imperialism. History has shown us all of this. And therefore, we must learn from history. We must learn that scientific socialism and the march towards communism is the only way in which the people of the world can truly be liberated. If you're still listening to this, thank you very much. I hope you have a lovely day. Please follow me on social media. If you'd like to reach out, you can DM me on there or email me at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com. And uh, stay, stay safe, folks. Stay healthy stay revolutionary, stay building anti-imperialist movements, and let's take down this bitch from the inside, let's kill it from the inside out, and let's build something that can completely end the oppression of the world. Long live the people's revolution, and long live socialism. Have a great day.